Take your Bibles now and turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. If you're visiting with us, I just want to tell you where we are. We are in the midst of a series on Exodus. We just passed the halfway point. This is sermon number eight. I could call it AA and squeeze another sermon out of it, but I won't. But uh, sermon number eight out of 14 on Exodus, the idea is to take the truths taught in the book of Exodus and show that those carry all the way through the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, in the spiritual realm and spiritual blessings and all that is involved in that. That's, that's where we're going in this series. And this is the central passage of the book of Exodus. Exodus 19 and 20, they're central. As a matter of fact, many people say that these two chapters are central to the whole Pentateuch, the whole first five books of the Bible. This passage of Scripture is critical for our understanding on how we are to live in this present world. You want to know how to live in this present world? Read Exodus 19 and 20 and, and, and uh, un, un, understand everything that's being taught there. Um, chapter 19 sets the stage for the Ten Commandments by setting the terms of the relationship that have not been set yet. God has drawn them out of Egypt. He saved them, but he hasn't set the terms of their relationship. They know the Lord, but they're, they don't know the Lord like they're about to know the Lord. He stuns the Israelites with his blazing holiness as an overwhelming glory. This, this is the God who, who calls them and made his covenant with them. And he is both gracious and holy. And so if you will stand with me, we'll read the first six verses of Exodus chapter number 19. <coughs> Exodus 19, verse number 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you out, or brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for Listen to this, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let us pray. Lord, whatever reason my heart is unsettled, I, 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 it feels like there's some sort of a spiritual battle going on. Lord, I don't, I don't know if there is or not, but I just pray that you will calm everybody's hearts down and help us to be able to focus on the word of God I confess I am completely inadequate to expound the glories of our Creator and our Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll take what is, is going to be so ineffective and effectively work in people's hearts through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Israel's arrival at the mountain, they call it the mountain of God, we know it as Mount Sinai, is one of the high points of the Exodus. It marks the achievement of God's plan to save his people for his own glory. It marks the beginning of a new stage of his covenant relationship with his people. Look at verse number one with me very quickly. It could be translated this way. It could be translated three months to the day after the Israelites had left Egypt, they entered the Sinai wilderness. Three months to the day, they arrived at Mount Sinai. Now this should bring us all the way back to the early parts of the Exodus, chapter number 3. If you hold your finger here and turn to um, Exodus chapter number 3, and look at verse number 12. Here's a promise that God gave to Moses. He said this, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Exodus chapter 3, Moses is doubting the word of God, doubting his own abilities, and God said, look, I'll prove to you that I called you. You're going to bring all those people out, and you're going to serve God on this mountain. And here he is, 
uh, sometime later, he's back on in the wilderness in Mount Sinai. Now, one more quick note as we get into the passage. If you'll remember from last week, we said that, that Moses struck the rock there at the base of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. Somewhere around that mountain is now a rock that is gushing water. We learned last week that that's, that's symbolic of Christ the living water, giving life to the whole nation. Christ gives life to his own people as well, doesn't he? And so uh, there, there's that going on as well around Mount Sinai. Now we're going to look at the first six verses real quick, and we're going to see that there is a calling. There's a calling. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. Now Moses had to go up to God because God is high and exalted. We don't go down to God, do we? We go up to God, metaphorically speaking, every other way. God began to speak to Moses in verse number 3. Look at what he said. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Did you notice how he describes Israel here? The house of Jacob and the people of Israel. This is formal language. He didn't call them the children of Israel or anything else. The house of Jacob and the people of Israel, this formal language, he's calling them by a proper title because he is about to lay out a covenant. This is an ancient Near Eastern covenant that we're seeing in these verses. Uh, all the ancient Near Eastern societies use this formal uh, way of addressing. I'm not going to go into it. It's really fascinating. But the words that follow, get this, the words that follow are the very heart of the Old Testament. Because in them, God described what he had done to save his people. And he also told them what he expected of them, and he revealed his deepest desires for their ultimate destiny. Those three things are wrapped up in what we're going to see today. This is the very heart of the Old Testament. Verse number four, look at what he says. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You know what this is? Look at it one more time. Look at it. Look at it. What is this? This is a summary of salvation. The, the pattern hasn't changed. It's the same for us. First, God delivered us from our bondage to sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And ever since, he has carried us on eagle's wings. He provides whatever we need. Whenever we're in danger of falling, he catches us and lifts us back up. And while God is pulling us into the embrace of his love, God brought us out and now he's lifting us up and drawing us close so that we will always be sure of his love. I mean, it's a summary of salvation. Look at the words of verse number five. Here we have a conditional statement. You know what those are, right? Conditional statements. Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Uh-oh. Now what's going on here? I want you to think, because many, many people get this completely hosed up. God is not telling them, well, I'm going to get into this. I'm getting ahead of myself. Realize that this statement was made to people who are already saved. Weren't they? They were already saved. The Israelites had been delivered from bondage, redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb, and this is crucial to understand how God's law works in the Christian life. This is absolutely crucial. The order of the Exodus is important. God gave them, he delivered his people from bondage, and then he gave them the law. Did you notice that? I've said that here for three solid years. I've, I've been telling people God saves and then he gives the conditions of his, of his law. If it had been the other way around, suppose that God had said to Moses, tell my people if you fully obey my covenant, I'll carry you out of Egypt on, on eagle's wings. What if he'd said it that way? How many people would have been able to go out? 
None, right? They would never have been in Exodus at all. God's people would still be in bondage due to their failure to keep a covenant with God. But God is full of grace. And so he saved his people first. First he called them to obey them, his law. The history of the Exodus helps us to understand the function of the law in the Christian life. God rescues us for our sin, and then he teaches us how to live for his glory. Think about the books of the New Testament. Almost every single epistle lays out the gospel. And then what's the second half? Paul says, therefore. And then he lays out how we are to live in light of that gospel. It's no different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. If personal obedience had come first, we never would have been saved. But as it is, God saves us in Christ. And then he calls us to live for Christ. Israelites, for, uh, for the Israelites, for us, this truth is absolutely critical to understand. In order for them to enjoy the fullness of God's blessings, they needed to keep the covenant. To keep the covenant allows you to enjoy the fullness of God's blessings. Let me translate it to today. You ready? You cannot experience intimacy with God and break his law at the same time. Let me give you one more implication. We cannot enjoy fellowship with God while we are rebelling against him. Now, dear believer, let me ask you this question. Are you being hesitant to obey the Lord at this time? If you are, the statement number three is true. When somebody comes to me in counseling says God feels real distant, the first thing I do is say, okay, where are you resisting the Holy Spirit? Right? Because these are absolutely true. But there's another dimension to this. Several times in Exodus, Moses gave them conditions of the covenant, and you know how they responded? It's it's in Exodus uh, at least three different times. They say, all you have said we will obey. (laughs) They're absolutely delusional. (laughs) Perfect obedience was a condition of God's people, and and that's a condition that they were unable to meet. Because of their sin, the Israelites never fulfilled their covenant obligations. Instead of telling Moses uh, they couldn't obey this, they tried to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak, spiritually speaking. What did they need? Instead of their perfect obedience, what did they need? They needed a Savior who could keep God's covenant. They needed the one that the author of Hebrews called the mediator of the new covenant, right? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Why? Why can we receive the promised inheritance? Because a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed of the first covenant. There's no way one person here could keep the terms of the first covenant. And so what do we need? We need somebody to redeem us. We need a mediator. Jesus died for us. We too are covenant breakers. But Christ offered full obedience to God for us, and he suffered the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And God's covenant is unconditional for us only because Christ kept its conditions. We are in Christ, so therefore we have kept the covenant of Christ. Isn't that wonderful to know? When you stand before the Lord, the Lord is going to look at you as perfectly keeping the law because you're in Christ. You have his robes of righteousness and all the other pictures that the Bible gives us. Isn't that great? What were God's promises for people keeping the covenant? What did he promise them? And this is where we get into their calling. The first thing he said is this. He said, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will become a treasured possession among all the peoples. Why? Because the whole earth is mine, but you're going to be the special ones. You're going to be the treasured people. Now, here's the question. What made these people so special? Was it because... They were especially gifted. 
were they really talented? Did they have power and prestige? They had none of these things. The Israelites were saved for no other reason than that they were objects of God's covenant choice. God's love. They were objects of God's love. That's the only reason. Isn't that amazing? Moses explained this later in Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy. Hold your finger here. Turn to Deuteronomy 7 in verse number 6. I've got to show you this. I'm going to show you how Moses treat, uh, treats the children of Israel, how he tells them. This is right before they go into the promised land. Moses given one of his last sermons. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, Moses explained it this way. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So he chose them out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. Why? Why did God make this choice? Well, Moses went on to explain. Look at the next verse. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the people. You're not so special, but it's because God loves you. Now, don't miss this, because a lot of popular songs miss this. What makes God's people precious is not their intrinsic value. What makes God's people precious is the value placed upon them by God's love. They were not precious because of who they were. They were precious because of who God was. You are precious not because of who you are. You are precious because of who your God is who saved you. That's the value that's been placed into your life. In one sense, everyone belongs to God because we're all made in God's image. But the Bible is clear that God showered many of his blessings on humanity in in general. The whole earth is mine, but God reserves a special place for his own precious people. Isn't that wonderful to know? You ever struggle with your identity? You know, midlife crisis. I didn't see any new Corvettes out in the parking lot this morning, so I guess we're all right that way. You ever struggle with who we are? There, there are many times when we don't feel very precious, do we? Did you feel precious when you rolled out of bed this morning? We struggle from one day to the next, don't we? We're weighed down by on-the-job stress. We're weighed down by spending the day at home with small children. We never quite seem to succeed in business. We get discouraged by conflicts and difficulties in ministry. We struggle. Anybody ever struggle with illness? Anybody ever struggle with loneliness? And even when we seem to have it all together, there are times when we feel unsatisfied and unfulfilled. But whatever our struggles, dear believer, listen to this. We are God's treasure. For we have been drawn close to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know the Apostle Peter took Moses' words here and applied them directly to the church of Jesus Christ? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, he says... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You may not feel treasured today. You may be struggling in one area or another, but you're just like the rest of humanity. Accept that. Accept that. You are God's treasured people. Isn't that wonderful? And that brings us to Israel's special purpose. Look at... um, Exodus 19 and verse number 6, he also says this, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are to serve God as priests. You're to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It is true that Israel is chosen out of the nations. Later in Leviticus chapter 20, God said, I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. However, God chose Israel with the ultimate intention of saving the world. And this comes through in verse number 5. Look at verse number 5. 
He says, you shall be my treasure possession among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine. This makes it clear that God's plan for Israel was part of his plan for the world. Israel was not only chosen from the nations, Israel was chosen for the nations. To give the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, when, a, when the Savior came, he was born King of the Jews, but he didn't come just to save the Jews. He came to save the world. That's what God said in, in Isaiah chapter 49 when he's talking about the Messiah. He said, I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Aren't you glad about that? Because I don't know very many Jews sitting here today. In fact, most of us are Gentiles, aren't we? Now Jesus has given the church the same priestly task that God once gave to Israel. We, we've seen how the Apostle Peter took Exodus 19 and applied it to us. We too are precious people, saved out all the nations. But I want you to see it more closely. Now turn to 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse number 9. I want you to see it. This is stunning. You, you're sitting here, you're getting all this information from me, and it's coming probably like a fire hose, but do not miss what Peter does with the message that Moses gives to Israel and what he does for the church. 1 Peter 2 and verse number 9. Look at what he does. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Isn't that exactly what God told Moses? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light isn't that wonderful we have a purpose proclaim his excellencies once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy and so here he's describing their salvation what did I say comes after salvation the condition of the covenant look at the very next verse Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Is that not just like Exodus? Uh, here's your salvation. Here's how you live because of your salvation. Verse number, uh, verse number next. I'm sorry, I don't have a verse reference here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, what? They may see your good deeds and what's the ultimate goal? Glorify God on the day of visitation. Dear believer, you are saved for God's glory. Now what is stunning to me, if you've, if you've been following, we're eight sermons in. Over every single week, we have taken something from Exodus and shown how the New Testament reinterprets that into a spiritual light regarding the church. Have you noticed that? It's so important that you don't take physical promises and physical blessings of the Old Testament and make them physical promises and blessings in the New Testament. That was not their purpose at all. And you see that over and over. It's an illustration. It's a living, breathing illustration. And so, like the Israelites... We are to be a kingdom of priests. God made us his treasure, bringing us from slavery to royalty, setting us apart for his holy service. And since we are saved for God's glory, what is our service? Our service is to worship him. In uh, the, the second song that we sang today, and of course my mind's drawing a complete blank what it was, in the second song there was a part where the instruments dropped out. I quit singing. You know why? Because I could hear all of you singing. And the singing was great. I loved it. I love hearing the saints sing. When you're down here with the speakers and everything, you can't hear the people, but I could hear you sing. It was wonderful. Worship God. That's, that's the holy service that we're set apart for, to glorify Him by declaring His praises. We also have a mission in this world, not to rule it, but to serve the world. The way we serve is by leading holy lives. What distinguishes us from the rest of the world is our personal godliness, or at least it ought to be, because the way we live is part of God's plan for saving the world. And this goes directly against so much of the teaching in the evangelical church that says the Old Testament was law, the New Testament is grace, you come as you are. 
Yes, you do come as you are, but you don't leave the same way, and you don't live the same way afterwards. It's so important that we understand that. And so we see our calling. Now let's look at the second, the, the rest of chapter number 19, verses 7 to 25, and I want us to see the absolute holiness of God. Now many evangelicals stumble when we get to this point. Exodus 19 began with the assurance of God's great love for his people, didn't it? We saw that. You are loved. If you're in Christ, you are loved. Now in the following verses, you know what he's going to show them? This same God is dangerous. God is dangerous. Do not miss that. He is both transcendent, way above us, and he is imminent. He is with us. He is exalted above all he has ever made. And yet, at the same time, he's intimately involved in everything that happens in the universe. Both of these things are true about God. And the trouble is, the trouble is that the church at large today tends to emphasize one at the expense of the other. Most Christians today feel more friendly with the user-friendly, or feel more comfortable with the user-friendly God than the one that's holy and majestic, one who is dangerous. And the result is a casual approach to worship. And I'm not talking about style of music. I'm talking about the attitude of the worshipers. God is holy. Now, God has reassured them of his love, and now he's going to show the Israelites his holiness. I, I can't even describe this adequately, but let's look at it, and I want you to, to look at it as well. Verse number 9. Verse number 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you and may believe you forever. Okay, he's telling them, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak. God was bringing his people close to Mount Sinai, yet the closer they came, the more clearly they saw the vast difference that separated them from God. At the same time that he's revealing himself, he's concealing himself in the cloud. The more they experienced his eminence, the more they recognized his transcendence. Now verse number 11, let's look at it. For on the third day, the Lord will come down to Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Look at the next verse. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Well, that's not the loving God that the evangelicals always talk about, is it? But did he just get done saying he loves them? Yes. <laughs> we won't practice this here, but look at the very next verse. No hand shall touch them, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. By the way, shot means shot through with an arrow is actually the, the, the Hebrew behind that. Okay? Uh, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. That is amazing, isn't it? Now you have to ask yourself, why did God put all these restrictions on Israel? For their protection. For their protection. It was a, having Moses place barricades around that mountain was a matter of public safety. I want to say it again. God is dangerous. He really is. He's so perfectly and supremely holy that it's not safe to barge into his presence. So here is the awesome dilemma the Israelites faced. They were being drawn into a close personal relationship with a holy God that was too dangerous for them even to approach. Is that a dilemma? Huh. It is, isn't it? So that brings us to a question that we have to answer. And here's the question, what can they do to remain safe? How does one remain safe around an absolutely holy God? And this is important. If you don't get anything else, don't miss these two points. They are critical to what we're looking at today. First of all, 
They had to consecrate themselves. In other words, they had to cleanse themselves. They needed to prepare for God's coming by cleansing themselves. Think about it. Their king was coming, wasn't he? The king is coming, and so they had to prepare. The Israelites had three days to make their preparations. First, if you read it, I'm not going to take time to read it, they were to put on their Sabbath best. The king was coming, and so they needed to wash their clothes. This is a sign, by the way, of sanctification. In the Bible, clothing often serves as an outward symbol of someone's inner spiritual condition, doesn't it? Robes of righteousness, wedding garments, filthy rags as opposed to clean rags. You see what I'm saying? And so they were to symbolically clean themselves up. So symbolically they could say that they were clean before the Lord. And um, here it indicates Israel's inward need for cleansing from sin and coming into the presence of the king. The second thing they had to refrain from was sexual intercourse. Not because there's something wrong with sex, but it's a form of fasting from those desires that everyone has. Okay? And we need to purify ourselves as well, don't we? Yes, the Spirit purifies us, but we are also called to purify ourselves. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Yes, Jesus is talking about salvation here, but he's also referring to our sanctification, our growth in Christ. Paul said this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to the completion in the fear of God. We are saved, yet we are called to fear God because He is holy. He is dangerous. And so part of our worship is to cleanse ourselves. When it comes to meeting with God, we cannot come as we are because the Bible says this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You want to see God? You will see God one day ultimately. That's your salvation. But do you want to see God here and now? Do you want to behold Him in Scripture? Do you want to be able to worship Him? Then live a holy life because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But our trouble is the same as the Israelites. We can never make ourselves holy enough for God, can we? I bet most of you sinned sometime already this morning. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to say it. Y'all sinned. Every single one of you this morning. You are not worthy in your sin to come before a holy God because we are so sinful. And yet, we can. Because God... Have a whole, we have a, something else that I'll get to in just a minute. i got to tell this story real quick. Thursday, I was talking to this guy. He's in his early to mid-30s. And I asked him, this is what I asked him. I said, how does one get to heaven? How does one live forever with God? And he looked at me after the initial deer in headlights, and he said, well, you know, be a good person. You know, be good and moral. Live, try to obey the commandments. You know, be generous. Be nice to people. Just, you know, just be a good person. And I would say that the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians think the same thing. Don't they? vast majority of people in the world think, okay, if I'm going to get to heaven, I just got to be a good person. The problem with that is Isaiah tells it very clearly all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. And so, dear person, take the most self-sacrificing, altruistic, worshipful act that you can even dream of. Give away your, your house or whatever it is. Sell it and give all the money to the homeless or whatever, whatever you can dream up. And the Bible says that that greatest pinnacle act of your goodness is nothing more than a filthy rag to the Lord Jesus, to, to God, to a holy God. That's not our sin. That's our good acts, the Bible says. As a result, as a result, we can't cleanse ourselves. Now, remember, that was the first thing I said. If they're going to come before the God, they can't cleanse themselves. And so what do they need? They need a second thing. 
It's a person. You need a mediator. You need a mediator. Now, I want you to look at a pattern in, in chapter number 19. Go back to Exodus 19. You'll be thankful you're not Moses. <laughs> Trust me on this. I want you to notice this pattern. Verse number 3, what did Moses do? Moses went up to God, and God spoke to him. Then what did he do? He went back down. Verse number 7 says that he went down the mountain, tells Israel the words of God. They responded. So verse number 9, he went back up the mountain and told their words to God. Verse number 10, he went back down and told the people God's words. Verse number 20, Moses went back up to God. But he didn't stay there. Verse number 25, Moses went back down and told the people God's words. And next time he was supposed to go up, later on, he's supposed to bring Aaron with him. Up, down, up, down, up, down, right? What's going on here? What is going on is that Moses was the mediator. He was the two-way messenger. His job was to keep the lines of communication open. But there's something else that he did that I want you to see in verse number 14. Look at verse number 14. There's one more thing that the mediator does. In verse number 14, the Bible says that he consecrated them. You see that? He consecrated. Now, how did he do that? Well, in the Old Testament, you consecrated something by giving a sacrifice. And so Moses obviously, most likely it was a bull or a couple bulls. He, sa he sacrificed and consecrated and the people, this is what God always requires for holiness. Before we can be considered righteousness in God's sight, a sacrifice must be made for our sins. And this was his role as mediator. It wasn't simply to converse with God and tell God's people what God said, but to consecrate the people by making atonement for their sins. That's what Moses did. They couldn't go up the mountain, only Moses he was a mediator. And this is what we need as well, isn't it? We need a mediator to cleanse us from sin and to consecrate us for God's holy service. And by the grace of God, we have such a mediator. The Bible says in Hebrews 8, 6, that Christ was, is a better mediator than Moses. The best and only mediator that we will ever need, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to the riddle of God's imminence and transcendence. He's God with us because he is truly divine. Jesus possesses all God's kingly majesty. Because he's a real human, he also shares in our humanity. He is the mediator that goes and speaks to God for us and makes us pure enough for God. As the scripture says in Hebrews 10.10, and by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's the mediator. Jesus is a transcendent and the imminent all at the same time. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Held incarnate, deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, right? Without ever giving up his divine nature, Jesus took on our human nature and thus fully entered our lost condition, yet he remained sinless. It was a man that Jesus, as a man, Jesus revealed God to us. It was as a man he suffered the indignities of this life on earth. It was as a man he suffered and died on the cross for our sin. The transcendent God is imminent through the person of his Son. Now for a time, Jesus ascended into heaven where he reigns in transcendent majesty and he is still with us by his Holy Spirit, of course. But we are waiting for the day when he will come and take us with him forever and we will hear the word shouted out, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and he shall dwell with them. God will be with us and we will be with God forever. Won't that be a wonderful time? Now let's think about just a minute how God showed his holiness to the people. Let's look at these verses together. Verse number 16, Exodus 19, verse number 16. 
How did they experience the holiness of God? Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. All the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now imagine they're already trembling in the camp. Moses said, come on, y'all. We're going to that mountain. Think about that for just a minute. He took them out there. Then Moses brought them out. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And so get the picture. It's getting louder and louder and louder. And they can see Moses speak to the Lord And literally, the Lord answers back in thunder. And Moses speaks to the Lord, and the Lord answers back in thunder again. And this conversation goes on. What the Israelites experienced that day was one of the most awesomely terrifying displays of divine power that anyone has ever experienced. All, All the forces and powers of nature slammed against that mountainside lightning and thunder and darkness and smoke and fire and earthquake understandably the over the israelites were overwhelmed with fear the whole mountain quaked and trembled and the ground underneath israel's feet was shaking and moving and everything about this entire encounter was intended to inspire the fear of god the israelites were so fearful they were physically shaking All the people in the uh, camp trembled, it says. Even Moses was scared. Did you know that? Lachlan read that today. Hebrews 12, 21, it says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Every time a human being has an encounter with God, they fear. Think about when, I should say God in his glory. Think about even something that we think as as peaceful and calm as the uh, the um, um, <laughs> transfiguration of Jesus. Remember that Peter, James, and John went up there, and Jesus was speaking to who Moses and Elijah, right? And he was up there, and what did they do? The Bible says they fell down on their faces in fear. When Isaiah saw the Lord. He said, woe is me, for I am a man undone. An encounter with the living God in all his blazing glory always brings men to tremble in fear. So what can we learn about God from all this? Well, first thing we learn, most obvious, is that God is awesome. Everything about the entire scene was, was designed to convey the supreme majesty and overwhelming power of the Almighty God. Another way to say this is that the mountain revealed God's glory. The whole purpose of this is to reveal that God is awesome in glory. It had to have been an amazing sight. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen it? It got kind of quiet in here, actually. The people who saw it could never forget that they'd been in the presence of the living God in all His holiness and all His majesty. And we must realize that that same God possesses all of that majesty right now at this very moment. So the proper way to respond to that kind of a God is with reverence and awe, isn't it? Secondly, we learn that God is not silent. The primary reason that God came down in this fashion was to give his law. It was designed to to prove that God was speaking to them. Notice the end of verse number 19. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. You ever wish you could answer your kids in thunder? (laughs) Oh, man. We better move on. The people were able to hear the actual voice of the Lord. Moses later reminded them, in, in Deuteronomy 5.22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, 
the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. Now the elders responded to this, and they said, and somehow I went on um, forward one too many, but it says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. We have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. They heard God's voice, and it was a sound of thunder. They knew God was speaking. And God is there in all his awesome glory, and he is not silent. And he speaks to us with all the authority of his divine sovereignty, doesn't he? And the third application that we can make is that we need to be very careful how we approach him. The priests were continually warned about their duties before the Lord. Even though they were sometimes allowed to see God's presence in certain religious rituals, they had to approach him in the right way, didn't they? They had to be cleansed. They had to keep themselves from women. And that's just to go do the regular priestly duties out in the courtyard. Then some of them got to go into the holy place. But the high priest, once a year, got to go into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and he had to do everything perfectly right. If he did not, he died. Tradition tells us they had bells on them, and they had a rope tied around them. And if they did not come out in a certain amount of time, that could mean that the high priest had died in the presence of the Lord, and they pulled him out of the Holy of Holies. That's how holy... Our God is. This, this is a sober reminder that God is dangerous. He's majestic and transcendent, and He burns bright and blazing holiness. Therefore, Scripture says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet, God, listen, please listen, God provided a way for His people to approach. So they could not go up to the mountain themselves, but Moses went up to meet God with them. He was their mediator. He was the one who talked with God on their behalf. And no one had ever experienced what Israel witnessed on Mount Sinai. And they learned how awesomely dangerous it is to approach the God who is there and is not silent. But praise be to God. We as Christians have a far greater privilege. The privilege is explained in Hebrews 12. That Lachlan read, and I don't even have time to go to it. And it draws a contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, doesn't it? Between the terrors of the law and the grace of the gospel. In order to approach a holy and awesome God properly and safely, we need a mediator. And Jesus is that mediator. He is a mediator who offered himself a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, and by his crucifixion and resurrection, he has delivered us from all the terrors of God's law and has granted us entrance into the glories of heaven. And we must decide where we would rather meet God because everyone one day will meet God. And it's either going to be Mount Sinai or it's going to be Mount Zion. Dear person sitting here today, do you know beyond a doubt that Christ Jesus is your Savior. You are fully trusting Him. You know beyond a doubt, you have not one single little doubt in your mind that when you leave this life, you will see the presence of God on Mount Zion and not on Mount Sinai. Do you? Jesus died on the cross, lived the perfect life so that you can. And you know what? By the way, we go right in, we, as, as um, just, I've got to say this, Moses went up there by himself to the presence of God, but now we go into the presence of God regularly because we are in Christ. Christ is our mediator. We are in him, and so we go to his very presence. And dear person, if you are not certain of this, make today your day of salvation. There might be some here, I've been praying and praying and praying. The Bible tells us that there are many on that day, Matthew chapter 7, who will stand in the presence of God and he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they're going to look at him and say, yeah, but I was a Sunday school teacher. Yeah, but I tithed to church. Yes, but I was faithful. I was on the committee. I was a deacon. I was an elder. And all these things, and God's going to look at them and say, depart from me, you work of iniquity, I never knew you. 
Because it's not about your works. It's about His work. But dear person, don't miss this. When He saves you, He also sanctifies you. And the fruit of your salvation in Jesus Christ is that you see day by day, slowly, oh, painfully slowly, you are becoming more like your Savior. God promises that. And if that is not a characteristic of your life, you might want to pray and seek God's face because you don't want to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. It's sober, isn't it? It's a sober thing to fall in the hands of the living God. But he provided a, a mediator that consecrated us. Well, supposed to do chapter 20 as well, which is the Ten Commandments. That would be another hour. <laughs> what I, I just want to say this. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20, it's another rehearsal of the plan of salvation. And the Ten Commandments are so rich and so wonderful that I'm going to circle back around and do a series on the Ten Commandments when this is all over. Because it, it's, it's beautiful. The Ten Commandments are wonderful. But just remember this. When God, who God saves, he also gives a covenant to. And he gives us his law. What are the things, if you want to enjoy rich, full blessing. And let me, let me end with this. Maybe you're here and you know you're in Christ. But there's not that richness of fellowship. There's not that worship of God. There's not that Christian life that you maybe once had. Examine yourself. Because it is very clear. Anyone who is resisting God is not having the fellowship with God that they want or they could have. Let's put it that way. Maybe this is time for you to get things right between you and God. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm, I've been resisting your Holy Spirit in this area. I, I want to make things right. I want fellowship with you. There's joy in the presence of the Lord. And that's what we all want, isn't it? The joy of the Lord. Lord, I thank you for Exodus. I cannot even express the thoughts of my mind how wonderful you are, Lord. And I can't express my burning desire for all of us to see God in his glory and to understand our salvation to understand the glories of God and so Lord I've done the best I can I'm going to ask your Holy Spirit to do that work that only your spirit can do there's someone here who has self-deceived in the thinking that they're in Christ May today be their sal day of salvation. If there's someone here who yeah, they don't have the joy they once had and they, and they know it's from resisting the Holy Spirit, I pray that today will be the day where they make that right and they once again, as, as David said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation that they can see God in all your great glory and grandeur and holiness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.